Just a heads up, this episode contains content that may be triggering, including descriptions of sexual assault. My two best friends and I were wandering around the kayaking festival enjoying the warm September day. Since the weather was so pleasant, I was wearing denim shorts, a t-shirt, and a pair of Converse. We approached a section of the festival that harbored tents of various kayaking brands that had some of their sponsored athletes sitting beneath them. Hey Caroline, a female athlete beneath one of the tents yelled at me, why are your shorts so short? Welcome to episode three of Women in Whitewater, a four-part limited audio series exploring what it's like to be a woman in the professional whitewater industry. My name is Rowan Stewart, and this podcast is the result of my outdoor and experiential education master's thesis research. The purpose of this thesis was to explore how professional women kayakers perform their gender in the leisure spaces surrounding whitewater kayaking. I also wanted to examine whether these performances resist, reinforce, or repurpose the status quo. As a reminder, this sound is the way that I indicate a citation is present. All sources used in this episode can be accessed on our website, womeninwhitewater.wordpress.com, or through the link in the show notes. There are three key theories that you will learn in each of these episodes. Post-structuralism, gender performativity, and discipline. If you're new to the podcast, please pause this episode now and go back to start with episodes one and two. The ideas of post-structuralism and gender performativity are more thoroughly summarized in those episodes. Today's episode is titled Discipline of the Body. In this episode, I will share true stories from professional women whitewater kayakers about the ways they dress, act, and are treated while on and around the river. We will return to this story that I shared in the introduction later on in this episode, but first, let's do a quick review. This podcast relies heavily on Judith Butler's performative theories of gender. Butler says that gender is performative, and she means that similarly to the way that Simone de Beauvoir said, One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. We act as if that being of a man or that being of a woman is actually an internal reality or something that's simply true about us, a fact about us. Actually, it's a phenomenon that's being produced all the time and reproduced all the time. Basically, what Butler means is that womanhood becomes what it is through the actions that we take, consciously or unconsciously, to make it so. Post-structuralism is the overarching research paradigm of this thesis. Post-structuralist theories are about the power of language to construct our realities. By looking critically at language, one goal of post-structuralist researchers is to reveal the power structures that are hidden in what we say. A post-structuralist believes that the deconstruction of language is important because it creates an opportunity to discover how reality is constructed. Now let's return to our narrative. Hey Caroline, why are your shorts so short? After the demeaning remark left her mouth, my happy-go-lucky mood turned quickly to mortification. I was shocked that this woman had made a comment in front of so many other people that sexualized my 17-year-old body. The fact that I considered her a role model for many years made the situation even worse. I felt my face go hot with embarrassment. They're not even that short, I said to defend myself, although I now recognize that I should never have felt the need to justify what I chose to wear. With this narrative, I want to introduce a new theory, Michel Foucault's ideas about discipline. Foucault was a French philosopher, historian, and social theorist born in 1924. He passed away in 1984. In ways that I see as being similar to Butler's ideas about gender being performative, meaning that gender is created through our actions, 
Foucault believed that discipline makes individuals, meaning that our actions and decisions are influenced by those who discipline us. That discipline could come from our friends, the media, and various institutions such as church, school, or the outdoor industry. Furthermore, the ways that we discipline ourselves and others is what shapes the unspoken rules about what is acceptable in a space. Discipline can be overt, meaning that it has explicit rules, or discipline can be covert, meaning that it can be hidden behind gestures meant to be friendly or casual. Discipline can be overt, meaning that it has explicit rules, or discipline can be covert, meaning that it can be hidden behind gestures meant to be friendly or casual. I used the research of Lisbeth Burberry as a foundation for distinguishing between overt and covert discipline. The 2017 article that is repeatedly referenced in this section of this podcast was written partially in screenplay format. She spent more than 70 hours of participant observations on the Zeta Chi sorority at U Southern, which are pseudonyms for both the sorority and the university. Burberry gives this example of overt discipline, saying, Experiences with the more overt types of discipline found within Zeta Chi had to do with stories heard about standards and nationals. Standards is a ruling body run by elected upperclassmen that acts like a court system within Zeta Chi. After every chapter meeting, standards would organize to reprimand and give out punishments, usually forced exclusion from future social events, to women who had committed offenses. The most common offenses were those that could potentially create negative press for Zeta Chai and often had to do with public displays of unladylikeness, including dancing on bars, being too sexual, being too drunk, or underage drinking. On the flip side, Burberry uses this example of covert discipline. This is a conversation between three roommates as they get dressed for a sorority gathering. Summer says, I feel like I'm stuffed in this dress. I can barely breathe. She begins to adjust the dress in the mirror, pulling it up and reorganizing her breasts, before saying, My boobs are everywhere. I even have them in the back. Wait till I have to sit down. I'll probably explode. Roommate S chuckles, recognizing that Summer has a good sense of humor about her size. Better watch those boobs. How soon you forget your rush debacle, Roommate S says half-jokingly. Summer responds, You know I really can't help it. What, do you want me to wear a sack? Roommate C chimes in. Maybe you better. At least pull it up a bit. You don't want people to think that you're trashy or that you're asking for it. Burberry goes on to unpack this conversation. This was the discipline of girl talk. The rumors, discussions, and confrontations that occurred among the women that reinforced the boundaries of appropriateness through joking, name-calling, opinion-gathering, trash-talking, and complaining. This covert system was more about absorbing the messages of girl talk, a slow process of re-socialization in which Zeta Chai's began to unconsciously adopt the expectations and boundaries of ladylike behavior. However, I feel like neither of these types of discipline fit quite right with the why are your shorts so short discipline of Caroline's appearance. While that statement does not come from an overt or formal rule about acceptable standards, it did not pretend to hide under a covert guise of politeness or subtlety. This woman-on-woman policing fits the description of respectability politics that author Mickey Kendall gives in their book Hood Feminism. We can't let respectability politics, that is an attempt by marginalized groups to internally police members, 
so that they fall in line with the dominant culture's norms, create an idea that only some women are worthy of respect or protection. Kendall asserts that feminism has to be for everybody, and that these respectability politics are one barrier to the accessibility of feminism. This pressure to maintain a good reputation, given the limited number of professional women in Whitewater, pitted member against member in a fight to uphold ladylike decency, to borrow a quote from Fairberry's article. Michelle Foucault says that discipline is a way that power is exercised on the individual. Discipline is used to control our behaviors and ensure that they fit within culturally accepted expectations. The following day, a 30-year-old man who had witnessed a woman's comment about my shorts sent me this message on Instagram. Hey, your shorts look good. I think you rock them. This message is a result of the culture that covert discipline helped to create. Upon hearing a woman comment about another woman, this man learned that commenting would be acceptable. As an action sport, whitewater kayaking emerged as an alternative to rule-bound traditional sports. On the surface, it seems like a field that emphasizes individuality and freedom from the status quo, but there are many covert rules that make you fit in when they are followed. Apparently, looking too sexy means that you don't fit in. By enforcing a culture where slut-shaming a woman for the length of her shorts is acceptable, where do we draw the line of unacceptable? Would it be unacceptable for an adult to talk about a 16-year-old's sex life? Another friend of mine at the age of 16 was insulted over the loudspeaker at a kayaking competition about the details of her sex life. Like my friend had lost her virginity the week before and somehow that information got out to everyone. And this lady, who was announcing for the event, actually made a comment about it over the loudspeaker. My friend was competing in this freestyle event. I think it was right before her competition ride. She was on the water ready to go and had to hear that. Is that unacceptable? Apparently not. A common topic of conversation is women, and it is often not a respectful conversation. Just a heads up, the next few minutes will contain subject matter about sexual assault and rape. If these topics will be triggering for you, you might want to skip ahead. This next story took place between a young woman and some of her kayaking peers in high school. A few weeks after the semester started, some boys made comments about rape being a joke. When I responded saying that rape is not a joke, they laughed at me and walked away. The school proceeded to have a talk with them, but most of them brushed it off. A week or so later, one student came and apologized to the girls for his earlier comments. When he heard this apology, another student who had been making the same jokes laughed again. He started to say that rape is a joke and something that doesn't actually happen. At this point, I was furious. I went and screamed at him. I said it was not a joke and I was raped six months prior. I proceeded to walk out in tears. Later, when I went to the teachers after, I was the one in trouble for yelling at the boy. This was an opportunity for the victimized to discipline what she was hearing. She took a stand for herself and the many others who have experienced sexual assault. By using her voice in opposition, she is able to reclaim power. This next quote comes from an article that discusses the ways Foucault might view rape in our society. Rape is an instance in which discourses of power produce the feminine body as viable and weak. Foucault tells us, however, that resistance to this constitutive discourse of power is also located with the feminine body. This notion has great import for a theory of rape prevention. If the feminine body is a surface on which the tenets of a sexually hierarchical culture are written, Foucault suggests that it is also the site where those tenets may be fought. When women's bodies are defined as a powerful force of counteracting violence, 
the very power structures that support rape will be crippled. I asked one of the other women that I interviewed to give me an example of what she and others referred to as the bro culture of whitewater kayaking. And this is one of the stories that they shared. One night, the crew was partying and playing Rage Cage. I was taking a break from the game when one of the guys grabs me and pushes me out the door so no one can see. He pushes me up against the wall and is trying to do things with me. I'm not okay with it and I'm trying to push him away. I try to open the door to get other people so that they notice I'm in distress. A couple of other guys realize that something's happening and walk out and start yelling at him. Hey, leave her alone. Hey, leave her alone. He lets go of me and just shrugs, saying, oh, whatever. I wasn't doing anything. No worries, no worries. Then there's this other kayaker who has raped two of my friends and sexually assaulted me, and we have told other kayakers about this, and they say, oh, wow, that's a bummer. But then they still go kayaking with him the next day. They still are friends with him, and they still invite him kayaking. Nobody seems to care, so I stopped telling people about it. The reactions to sexual assault and rape in this narrative send very clear disciplining messages. From the casual response of the perpetrator saying, it's no worries, no worries, to the dismissive replies from other kayakers who say, wow, that's a bummer. These reactions can create a community where rape culture is normalized and for some has become synonymous with bro culture. This teaches the members of this space that nothing will happen when they speak up. People learn that it's okay to share stories about a young woman's sex life over the loudspeakers at a kayaking competition. They call out the length of a girl's shorts, publicly ridiculing and gossiping about her. A woman is pushed out the door and sexually assaulted, and no one seems to bat an eye. Jokes about rape and sexual assault are so normalized that nobody seems to care, so I stopped telling people about it. We went from a seemingly harmless comment about the length of someone's shorts to overlooking sexual assault. This escalation is an example of the ways that culture is created through discipline and the impact that even small actions can have on the boundaries of that culture. Today's episode has covered some heavy topics. Sharing the stories of those who have experienced sexual assault is never easy. I wrestled with choosing the ideas that are represented in this episode because I do mostly love the spaces that I go kayaking in. I didn't want to discourage women who are interested in entering those spaces with these sorts of stories. But that wouldn't have given an honest picture of some of the experiences that women have had in the kayaking community. However, next on Women in Whitewater, I will share some lessons for the kayaking community and the stories and spaces that women feel empowered by. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on the river.